These are remarkable stories. The following episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Did Guantanamo make American feel safer? No. In the contrary, Guantanamo stands for torture, oppression, lawlessness, abuse of power, injustice, and indefinite detention. You know, America is not the the mighty military or the nuclear arsenal. America is not Trump or Biden or George W. Bush. No. This is the set of values that would make America great, honestly. So when you violate your own values, you actually, it's kind of like a kind of destruction. Guantanamo Bay could have been an opportunity, right? An opportunity to show the world that we operate under the rule of law, that we're a fair and just nation and society, that we do adhere to our own precepts as a nation founded on human rights, that we considered inalienable rights, uh, that, that could not be abridged by man. And, and we violated our own constitution in doing so. Mansour Adaifi was held in Guantanamo Bay for 14 years and never charged with a crime. Mark Fallon was a career intelligence official and a chief NCIS investigator for the Al-Qaeda terrorist network. It might just surprise you how much they agree about what happened in Guantanamo. This is part two of Mansour's story. I am John Herlig. One of the generals reported to the Pentagon that 86% of the prisoners were either mistaken identity or sold from a bounty man. They have no connection to Al-Qaeda or Taliban. He was immediately removed. And they were sent General Jeffrey Miller. The first I met, met General Miller, you know, I wrote a, a famous email that said this kind of stuff congressional hearings are made of. General Jeffrey Miller, the first day he assumed command of the detention, he searched and beat almost everyone. I am here, ladies. I'm going to kick your ass. Mansour Gaddafi is, is a victim of U.S. state-sponsored torture. He is the unattended consequence right, of this. Someone who was not a member of Al-Qaeda, was not a threat to the United States. When he came, he started waterboarding, uh, sexual assault, everything. They were working with some uh, psychologists and uh, military advisors and so on. So now the hell really started. It's amazing to me as I read your book that through that horror, maybe at its worst during General Jeffrey Miller's tenure, there were not only bondings between detainees that happened, but, but that you guys bonded with guards. And I have a couple of specifics that I read that I wanted to comment on. And you said in the book that most guards who arrived at Guantanamo were still confused by their missions and confused by who you were. 
And you said that the detainees at Guantanamo were certainly not the only victims and that no one leaves Guantanamo unharmed, right? A couple of incidents in particular that come to mind, um, including a guard who refused to drag you to interrogation, which, correct me if I'm wrong, they referred to as a reservation, like you're going out to dinner. You have a reservation. And uh, a young guard who brought chocolate to a detainee because he reminded her of her younger brother. Was it a risk for them to talk to you? How many of them did it? And, and what came from some of the bonds that you made or others made with guards? You know, as, as always, uh, uh, I say that not just detainees were victims of Guantanamo. There were also guards, camp staff, nurses, doctors, you know, anyone who tried to stick to their humanity, tried not to let Guantanamo change them, there's a price they have to pay. When guards were sent to Guantanamo, we could see that we could see when the guards arrived, they were like nervous, afraid. You know, one of the guards... <laughs> He told us, he told like, the moment I learned that Guantanamo was shaking. He said, I couldn't sleep. They never meet people that, like, uh, they were the culturists. Then when they came, when they came to work with us, you know, when someone can observe, watch every single day, they become part of our life. We become part of theirs. They watch us eat, drink, sleep, suffer, cry, get beaten, interrogated. No matter what you do, you will know it is a bad or good person. We cannot hide. You cannot hide. Then we, we developed some kind of friendship with many of the guards, to be honest with you. And many of the guards tried to help. Some of them with medicine, with food, breaking the rules, because they like human like you. Do you understand? What happened there, it was wrong. So, for example, that young female, mm -hmm. when she was ordered to drug me, because we refused to walk the interrogation because we were torture. We were stripped naked and searched and so on. And, uh, and they told her, if you refuse, they will come, they will bring the earth team, drag you out, spray you. And then they asked the guard to drag you to the interrogation. And spray you means pepper spray, right? Pepper spray, yes. It's just showering, you know, the big one. So the guard, the, the female, she was the, the, the watch commander told her, okay, drag the detainee. She said, I can't. He said, drag the fucking detainee. She said, I can't. They called the officer, the camp officer, and he took her side. He tried to talk to her, love, you know, it's your job. I don't know what he's saying. She, she, she refused. And when she says, I can't, obviously she could. She is saying, I can't, as in, I can't make myself do it. Yes. And I told her, yo, it's okay. Just do it. Right. You know, <laughs> I felt sorry for her. I said, you know what? It's not the first time. It's not the last time. Just do it. She was forced. And this is one of the many other stories. The female who also was sympathizing with detainees or being friendly, it was a problem. Guard get punished, get demoted. I remember one of the uh, soldiers, he, he gave extra bread to a detainee. He got demoted. And he told my brother, he said, because they saw him uh, giving extra bread to a detainee. And so he got demoted. Tell me who gave you the nickname Smiley Troublemaker and where that came from. <laughs> Smiley Troublemaker, it, 
I, I took it as like uh, a rank for me at Guantanamo. I was given by one of the camp commanders because when I used to get beating, spray, or uh, so on, I always smile at the guards, you know. And in their eyes, when we like uh, resisting or doing hunger strike, they classified us like uh, troublemakers. Smiley troublemaker. Yeah. For the, in their eyes, if you try to resist, you are a troublemaker. You are Al-Qaeda. Everything is jihad. Hunger strike is jihad. You know, protesting is jihad. I said, what's wrong with you guys? I mean, John, it was so crazy. You know, imagine you are being a detainee, tortured and abused, and someone told you, yeah, you tried to destroy my country. Oh, guys, this is crazy. I said, look, I didn't even own my own underwear. How am I going to destroy your country? Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care. You know, my mother, she lives in the village. She doesn't know what even America, what America is. Trust me. One of the things also, I always, when they took photos, I always smile in my photos. Always. <laughs> so, so I can send you, I can send you uh, photos. So like they, they usually put some kind of card on ourselves. Confirmation, the name, the number, you know, warning for the guards. And I always smile. When the visitors or delegation or everyone came, why is the fucking detainee smiling? Is he happy here? <laughs> uh, some of the, some of the guards, hey man, I always see you smiling in your photos. Why? I said, why not? When the new guard came around, I would say, hey guys, how are you? Hugs, please. <laughs> John, they were shocked. I said, guys, come on. Come on, guys. They cannot talk back. They, they told me to talk back. I said, I'm trying to communicate with you guys. We just are humans and to break this, you know, the, this barriers. What did you do to win the right to have communal living space? What sacrifices and how did it feel the first moment you walked through the door? Oh, John, we spent years and years actually fighting for the basic right. Guantanamo is created outside of the law, outside of the humanity, outside of the legal, of the justice system. You have no rights. Everything is classified about us, about you. So we spent years and years on hunger strike and force feeding. I spent three years on force feeding. I'll get fed through my... Uh, Knows. They told us we had no say about the living condition. When uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Obama was, you know, we, we heard that an American-African guy said he was going to close Guantanamo. We wished that that man would, would win the election and would close Guantanamo. And he did win the election. Then, honestly, I wish that he closed Guantanamo. But I told my brothers, I feel it's not going to happen. My brother said, you don't even understand. He already signed an executive order. It's finished. Technically, it's already done. Executive order means done. Now, I, th I think President Obama was well-intended and did intend to close Guantanamo. Uh, however, he did not quite understand either the depths of depravity of the U.S. torture program or the extent of involvement of people within the government of numerous governmental organizations that were part and party to state-sponsored torture. What derailed it was uh, an effort by a number of individuals and institutions to ensure that the torture program and those involved remain secret. 
And so there's been an incredible effort to drape a cloak of invisibility over anything that would shed light on torture or torturers. I think when Obama found out he's not going to close the detention, he sent a delegation to Guantanamo. I met with them. And first question, they asked me, why are you wearing the orange uh, jumpsuit? I was shocked, John. You sent by Guantanamo to improve the living condition. And you ask me why I'm wearing the, the orange jumpsuit. Why are you a troublemaker? Why I'm here in the first place? What I have done? So I should in, inject in here that not everyone in Guantanamo wore orange. I don't think everyone knows this, right? Orange is a color you were put in if you were classified as non-compliant or if you were a troublemaker in their eyes. Yeah, many, many of us were. Okay. So basically, I was, you know, I thought I'm going to meet people who would understand our situation, what we have been through for the last seven or eight years. And the first question, what are you causing problems? I said, are you serious? Can you tell me why I am here, please? Honestly, it was like, I was shocked. I said, you judge us before even listening to us. When you create this monster, this Al-Qaeda monster, then you get budget, you get resources, agencies get power. And so this is what happened in the wake of 9-11. Uh, the CIA was indiscriminately, if you look at the Senate Select Committee uh, on Intelligence, the torture report, uh, they had over 100 prisoners in custody. They, they lost track. They didn't even know how many prisoners they had. They had these black sites pop up all over the world, and they were just indiscriminately, and they would say that that was based on some intelligence, but it was not. Uh, it was based on speculation. Their analysts speculated what Abu Zubaydah should know, uh, not what he did know. And so then, then the goal was we have to get that information from him to save lives. And, and then you don't know when to stop. And the prisoner doesn't know what you want to know, so they don't know when to stop. And so uh, after Abu Zubaydah was captured, uh, if you look at a timeline in the United States, the threat level kept going up when we had these M&M color-coded threat levels where uh, the Department of Homeland Security came up with. Well, the threat level kept uh, increasing because we were chasing false leads. We were wasting resources trying to track down fabricated information that prisoners were saying because they wanted the torture to stop. They said what their captors wanted them to know, not the truth. If I have committed a crime, okay, please charge me. Yes, I'm on hunger strike. Why I'm here in the first place? Like, it was unbelievable. Then they missed some recommendation. And uh, by 2010, they came to talk to us. Some of us were on hunger strike, some were on force feeding, and many brothers wanted also to join us. We negotiate about, you know, communication with our families, you know, phone calls, uh, having a communal living for everyone, classes, TV, newspaper, books, and, and so on. And they agreed to most our demands, and everything changed all of a sudden. Imagine. Some of the camp commanders came to meet with me. They take the handcuffs. I was punished for shaking my brother's hands. Now they shake my hand. I said, it's against the rules. You will be punished. And he was a Navy uh, captain. He was a nice guy. He said, Mansoor, it's a new era now. So I told him, look, if you look at our our behavior in the detention, 
we just we reacting to whatever you throw at us. The problem with torture is that, you know, one, it's the fabricated information. But, but even if you had someone who you tortured and they gave you some good information, it would be filled with a bunch of other false information as well. And, and uh, a neuroscientist that, that I'm friends with uh, calls it the signal to noise ratio. Right. There's so much noise that you can't tell what the, what the strong signal is. Uh, and, and so that's that's one of the problems with torture. I can't say that torture would never get you any semblance of some type of accurate information. What I can tell you is based historically is you couldn't tell the difference. Right. We got so much bad and false information. And the, the other shameful aspect of this is uh, the, the Sissy report, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Torture Report analyze the 20 cases that the CIA promulgated as their most successful uh, endeavors in torture and, and found that not even in one of them did they come to any new unique information. So then we said, look, we need just to keep, uh, keep the peace, calm down, blah, blah. I said, look, we have no intention to do anything. And our problem is not with you. And we want to have some peace until your government sorts our case out. And we left them peace, to be honest with you. And they, the guards at that time were more friendly to the detainees than ever because the rules relaxed. Some of the guards converted to Islam. You know, some of the guards brought a lot of counterpart from the, for the detainees. You name it. DVD players, uh, MP3s, glasses, exchange gifts. I sent gifts to many guards to their families and so on. You know, we have the shared humanity. I cried when I saw my brother sitting there, my brother sitting there, eating, drinking, smiling. It is one of the happiest moments I saw my brothers. You know, they could walk freely, they could talk, they could eat, they could watch TV. Because we had been through a lot of suffering, hunger strike, you know, beating, and torture, and so on. I started learning English. It was hard. At the beginning when I started, I had a, a book called Around the World in 80 Days. It took me six six months to finish the book. <laughs> and some guards and some brothers used to make a joke. Mansoor, that guy finished in 80 days. We're not going to finish. Phileas Fogg, right? It only took him 80 days to go around the world, and it took you six months to read it. Yeah, I said, look, <laughs> I said that guy finished early because he found, he found his sweetheart. I need to find my sweetheart so I can <laughs> finish the book. <laughs> I understand that the wounds from Guantanamo are for life and that that can never change. Um, and yet you, Mansoor Adaifi, as I, I look at you right now, you have an incredibly positive spirit. I know you said you've had this all your life. Um, so I wonder this, you're, you're in Guantanamo 2.0, as you call Serbia, because you're you're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not allowed to leave, right? But how, how is day-to-day -day life for you in Serbia right now? Do, do, you, can you, do you meet friends for coffee? Do you walk to the vegetable market and smell the fruit? Does that little bit of joy exist in your Guantanamo 2.0? You know, John, freedom is not just a word. Freedom is life. Because at Guantanamo, you will just exist, not, not a life. 
Now, when I talked to one of my brothers in my research, he said, Mansour, jail is better than incomplete freedom. I said, yeah, makes sense. You know, when we left Guantanamo, we thought we were free. But I was told literally, you live in this country. I think I'm lucky compared to the brothers who lost their life, dying of medical negligence. Uh, for me, it was hard and difficult at the beginning. Surveillance. And I have to fight for everything. Trust me, for everything. Now, I'm not allowed to travel. I can't travel. My own country refused to give me my passport. Uh, I haven't met my family. But, you know, I'm trying to stay positive, finish my college education, try to help my brothers around the world. At the beginning, I, I had some friends, but many of them were either arrested or interrogated. So I, I, I tell the people, look, I am a former Guantanamo detainee. I am here. If you want to be friends with me, drink up with me, there was going to happen to you. Are you ready to take that risk? Because it is worse when someone gets hurt because of me. Mansour Gaddafi is in Serbia right now. And now, fortunately, we have not turned him into a threat. Right? Fortunately, he's out there speaking out. Uh, he, he is still a prisoner of Guantanamo in a way because he is not able to go home to Yemen. He doesn't have a network you know, where he's at uh, in Serbia. And so he is very much isolated from the world where he sits. Um, and so he does have a voice, though. He has his book out there. Uh, I've done talks with him uh, together. And he's someone who, who I support in his, in his efforts to illuminate this darkness. I hope I can finish my master's degree. I'm struggling to, because of the financial issue. We're also working on the uh, TV show from Guantanamo with Love. And uh, I hope one day I can manage to get out from Serbia and get married and finally have the two lovely daughters. <laughs> and uh, I pray for peace. Your book, Mansour, is called Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found at Guantanamo. What is your hope that the book might accomplish? I hope that book can help for the closure of uh, Guantanamo and fight the idea behind Guantanamo, you know, the torture, the abuse, the injustice, the abuse of power, the oppression. You know, all of that, it's not what America is about. So also, I'm really grateful that many Americans now help us to call for the closure of Guantanamo. 90% for the people who is fighting for the closure of Guantanamo are Americans. And what would you say to anyone who won't listen to the story, who's, who's made up their mind about Guantanamo and the people who were there without letting them speak? You know, if you believe in justice and what justice is, you should reconsider your, your, your thoughts. George W. Bush and his gangs don't represent America or American values. They abuse uh, and misuse the power they were given. When people ask me, does torture work? I have to ask them, does it work for what? Because it is not designed to get accurate, reliable, and truthful information. It is designed to get the information that we want. Uh, and what we did was, with a prisoner named Ibn Sheikh Alibi, who was the emir of the Calvin training camp, uh, when he was at Bagram, I had looked to bring Ibn Sheikh Alibi to Guantanamo for trials before military commission as a trainer of an al-Qaeda training camp. 
Ibn Sheikh Alibi was taken to Egypt and he was brutally tortured in Egyptian prison. Ibn Sheikh Alibi said there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. President Bush went to Cincinnati, Ohio, and got the American public on board with the war in Iraq, saying there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Colin Powell went for the United Nations and got an international coalition behind our invasion of Iraq, partially on the information that there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Ibn Sheikh Alibi said that so the pain would stop. It was totally fabricated information. So when people ask me, does torture work? I have to ask them, does it work for what? Because torture did work for a policy decision. Torture did work to allow the President of the United States, George W. Bush, and the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, to go before the international community and, and, and advocate for a fabricated uh, piece of information that came from Ibn Sheikh Alibi that was al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, when debriefed following that, after the torture stopped, Ibn Sheikh Alibi said he said that so the pain would stop. I never got to see Ibn Sheikh Alibi back in Guantanamo Bay because the United States government transferred Ibn Sheikh Alibi to Libya, to Muammar Gaddafi. And it was later reported that Ibn Sheikh Alibi committed suicide in his cell. Dead men tell no tales. The only way that we're going to ensure that we, the civilized Western world, don't go down this pathway again is if we come to grips with the truth that President Bush uh, authorized torture. He sanctioned torture. Uh, President Obama gave it sanctuary with his policies of impunity and look forward, not backwards policies. President Trump celebrated torture, right? Said he's going to you know, bring more people to Guantanamo. Said he's going to do waterboarding and worst. President Biden, for the most part, has ignored the torture issue. While he is releasing some people from Guantanamo or transferring them, he has not yet been held the United States to account for this, you know, Guantanamo Bay gulag that continues to be a symbol of U.S. torture, injustice, and oppression. While there's less than 40 people there, only 10 are scheduled for trial, and they're still in the motion hearing phases 20 years after the September 11th attacks. My last message is to President Biden. Please close Guantanamo. Mansour Daifi currently lives in Belgrade, Serbia. His book is called Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found at Guantanamo. Mark Fallon is the co-founder of Project Aletheia, which was established to bridge the gap between the science and practice of interrogation. His book is called Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon, and U.S. government conspired to torture. Remarkable Stories is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. From everybody at Remarkable Stories, I'm Georgina Milsom saying thank you for listening.